Is the president willing to keep any other mechanisms, like, for example, the 14th Amendment in his back pocket as a fail-safe in case these negotiations don't work out? Mm, good question. How about in the front pocket? How about put that right up front? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No way. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Hey there. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, and many other fine terrestrial affiliates. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing, Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, still your pro-democracy news headquarters. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. And, oh, it is thrilling. We'll see. We'll see. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. All right, before we get into the rest of today's thrilling news, uh, on Tuesday's elections in several states and an update on the GOP House's continuing efforts at holding the world economy hostage to their threats of forcing a default of the U.S. government for the first time in our nation's history— just one quick note, one quick update to our coverage yesterday of the grotesque lawsuit filed by Noelle Dunphy against her one-time employer, Rudy Giuliani, who Dunphy details in the suit, uh, among other horrific things, sexual being sexually abused and manipulated by Giuliani for two years while he paid her just $12,000 of her promised $2 million salary during that time before he unceremoniously fired her. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to go through the <laughs> grotesque details. I Thank know. You. You're welcome. <laughs> if you want some more of those, you can and should uh, see yesterday's broadcast. If you'd like more on that, you can download it for free as ever, thanks to donors at bradblog.com. You can get more, including uh, her allegations that uh, Giuliani, uh, while Trump was still in office, told her that he was selling presidential pardons for $2 million with uh, proceeds to be split 50-50 with Donald Trump. In any event, uh, she claims to have many of these allegations backed up with audio recordings and emails and text messages and more. 
But I, I finally got to read the full lawsuit this morning on the 22 causes of action that Dunphy details in her 70-page suit, seeking at least $10 million from the disgraced Giuliani. And I just want to note this single paragraph that I have not seen reported elsewhere, just to make sure that we get it on record. It may have been reported elsewhere. I don't know, but I, I haven't seen it. Paragraph 124 of the complaint on page 23 reads... Quote, on February 7, 2019, so that's almost two years before the 2020 election, on February 7, 2019, Giuliani told Ms. Dunphy in her capacity as his employee about a plan that had been prepared for if Trump lost the 2020 election. Specifically, Giuliani told Ms. Dunphy that Trump's team would claim that there was, quote, voter fraud and that Trump had actually won the election. Again, that was according to Dunphy, who has very good records of all of this. Uh, this was in February of 2019. Rudy Giuliani was already talking about the plan that they had. If it was declared that uh, they had lost, that Donald Trump would just simply declare voter fraud and claim that he actually won the election. Almost two years before Trump would, in fact, go on to lose the 2020 election, lie about it claim voter fraud and that he actually won the election and with Rudy Giuliani, of course, leading the fraudulent voter fraud campaign. Just wanted to make sure we got that on record since I hadn't seen it elsewhere. Yeah, that's uh, I guess I'm actually surprised that they were planning way back then to lie about voter fraud and planning to claim that Trump won no matter what, regardless of whether he won or not. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be surprised, but I am a little bit. Well, seeing it in writing, I mean, he had, uh, you know, made similar claims in 2016, indicating he was going to do exactly that. But the fact True. that they had already been making, uh, you know, actively working out plans for it in early 2019, uh, suggesting they expected to lose the following year and, yep. and already uh, coming up with their plans that schemes Rudy Giuliani would then lead to his shame and embarrassment and, frankly, the nation's shame and embarrassment. Indeed. All right. Speaking of elections, as mentioned yesterday, there were a number of state and municipal elections of note around the nation on Tuesday, even with everything else going on, uh, even if they didn't get the sort of some of the attention that I think some of them deserved. Most were primary elections on Tuesday, though in some cases there were special elections uh, or primaries in locations that a primary win is just about as good as a general election win, for example, in Philadelphia. But we will get there in a second. Perhaps the best news for Democrats on Tuesday came out of, of all places, Florida, one of the few states last year during the midterms where Democrats seemed to underperform against expectations with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis and his party winning by far bigger numbers in uh, the Sunshine State than where we uh, than Republicans really did anywhere else in the country where the uh, hoped-for red wave for Republicans never otherwise came. But on Tuesday this week, it was a Democrat in an historically Republican part of Florida who pulled off uh, 
a bit of an eyebrow-raising victory, which may or may not be a bellwether for the uh, for the state and for Democrats in 2024 overall. Democrat Donna Deegan was elected mayor of Jacksonville, Florida, on Tuesday in an upset victory, shaking up the politics of Florida's largest city, where Republican mayors have been in power for all but four of the last 30 years. Deegan, a former television news anchor, defeated Daniel Davis, the Republican chief executive of the local Chamber of Commerce, who was endorsed by Governor Ron DeSantis, who had uh, been seen as the likely favorite, Davis was, seen as the likely favorite in the traditionally Republican stronghold. In recent years, Jacksonville had been the most populous city in the nation with a Republican mayor, Lenny Curry, who uh, is term limited. That distinction right uh, now, by the way, for the most populous city in the country with a Republican mayor. Any guess what it is, Desi Doyen? No. It's from your home state. It would be the great city of Fort Worth, Texas. While uh, Florida has become decidedly more Republican in recent years, and while many have viewed DeSantis, a likely 2024 presidential contender, as all-powerful in state politics, Jacksonville has apparently emerged as a very swingy corner of the state. A majority of voters in Duval County, which shares a consolidated government with the city of Jacksonville, voted for the Democratic nominee for governor back in 2018, then for the Republican mayor in 2019, then for President Biden in 2020, and for DeSantis just last year, and now for Deegan, who will be the city's first female mayor. Nice. Quote, I made a decision when we got into this race, uh, Deegan told her cheering supporters on Tuesday night. No matter what happened, no matter what the landscape was like, We were going to lead with love over fear. We would not go with division. We would go with unity. Good thought in the great state of Florida these days. And apparently that strategy worked. Davis had outraised Deegan by uh, about four to one. And as the New York Times argues, seemed like the sort of business-friendly Republican that has long dominated elections in Jacksonville. But in the end, the previously moderate Republican who uh, campaigned from the political right for some reason, pledging to be tough on crime in a city with high crime rates, well, he ended up losing by about four points to the Democrats. The loss was also bad news for Ron DeSantis because he had endorsed Davis. But As the Times also reports today, on Monday, uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida went out on a limb. On Tuesday, it snapped. (laughs) A day after he swooped into the Republican primary for Kentucky governor with a last-minute endorsement, a move that turned the race into a proxy battle between himself and former President Donald Trump, DeSantis watched his chosen candidate lose in a landslide to the Trump-backed rival in the bluegrass state. On Monday, DeSantis made a last-minute endorsement and robocalls for Kelly Kraft, a former U.N. ambassador under Donald Trump and a member of a Republican mega-donor family. And while that may end up helping DeSantis to raise funds, we will see, for his uh, presidential run, raising funds perhaps from the Kraft family and her wealthy coal baron husband. 
it was not a great political look for uh, for De- for DeSantis to be on the side of two losers on Tuesday, where he went zero for two in his major endorsements. Womp womp. Sad. Attorney General Daniel Cameron won the Republican nomination for governor in Kentucky. Uh, That sets up the highest profile governor's race of 2023. Cameron, a protege of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a former aide of his, uh, was endorsed by Donald Trump. He emerged on top of a GOP field that included Kraft, who blew $9 million of her own money on her own campaign, and in the end, it was not even close. Cameron had uh, about 45.5% to Kraft's 17.5%. When AP called the contest on Tuesday night, that was a blowout. By airtime today, Cameron looks to have defeated Kraft, who actually ended up coming in third, by the way. But Cameron defeated Kraft in that proxy battle by some 31 points. Cameron will now go on to face the popular incumbent Democratic governor in Kentucky. That would be Andy Bashir this November. Republicans acknowledge that beating Bashir this fall will not be easy, but they argue that Cameron, the state's black attorney general, And apparently a rising star in Kentucky Republican politics is in the best position to do so. For his part, Governor Bashir won his primary as well in an even larger route. Bashir won by more than 86 points. I would call that decisive. Over his nearest Democratic rival. Cheryl Parker, a Democrat with a long political history in Pennsylvania, won Philadelphia's mayoral primary on Tuesday, almost certainly setting her up as the city's 100th mayor. And, as it turns out, the first woman to serve in that role after 99 men in a row. That is uh, that alone is good news, though the win was likely a disappointment to progressives who had rallied around another woman, Helen Jim, who was backed by Vermont U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders and New York's Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Parker, who served for 10 years as a state rep before her election to the Philadelphia City Council in 2015, emerged from a crowded field of five front-runner Democratic candidates vying to replace Philly's term-limited Democratic Mayor Jim Kenney. Parker pledged to, quote, stop the nonsense of lawlessness that is plaguing our city by putting hundreds more officers on the street to engage in community policing. Parker pushed for officers to use every legal tool, including stopping someone when they have, quote, just cause and reasonable suspicion. She received support from members of the Philadelphia delegation in the House and was also backed by labor unions as well as the outgoing mayor. Parker will go up against Republican David O. in the November 7 general election in Philadelphia. But uh, as I said, uh, in a city like Philadelphia, pretty much the mayoral campaign uh, primary election uh, ends that uh, contest in truth. 
unless there's a huge surprise this November. So Sherelle Parker, likely to be the first female mayor of, uh, of Philadelphia this fall. It was not all disappointing news for progressives, however. In another race on Tuesday, voters in Allegheny County, which encompasses the state's second largest city of Pittsburgh, picked a uh, sitting state lawmaker, Sarah in Inamorato, as their Democratic nominee to face the lone Republican contender, Joseph Rocky, in the November general election. Unlike in the Philadelphia mayor's race, the primary winner here will not necessarily be the person most likely to fill the county executive's seat. But... Uh, Our Revolution, uh, a movement that was born during uh, Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential race, a progressive group, now one of the largest progressive organizations in the country, well, they had endorsed in a Murato, and so that is a win for the progressive movement, even with its loss in the Philly mayoral primary. More good news for Democrats in general in the Keystone State on Tuesday. Pennsylvania House Democrats will retain their one-seat majority in the state House. Uh, and this has been a, a kind of a nail-biter gone back and forth yes, since last November. And the where the Democrats had actually won the majority, and then they sort of lost it because someone died unexpectedly. Then they won it back. Now it went up for uh, kind of went up for grabs here after what happened in uh, in recent months in the state. The AP declared Democrat Heather Boyd the winner of the special election to replace former state uh, representative Mike uh, Zab- uh, uh, Zabalid, I think is how you say his name. He resigned amid allegations of sexual harassment recently. Boyd defeated Republican Katie Ford in the state's 163rd House District. Democrats had outspent Republicans 10 to 1 in hopes of preserving their majority, which they had achieved finally in February for the first time in 12 years. House Democrats promise to continue the work that they have started since taking the majority in February, now that it looks like they are going to hold on to it. Some of that work includes advancing a number of long-sought legislative priorities that they previously could not even get a vote for in committee, including gun safety reforms and protections from discrimination for LGBTQ residents. Whoever controls the House will set the agenda on state policies for elections, school funding, taxes, abortion access, gun reform, and more. So winning the House is, or I should say holding the House in this case, is a very big deal in Pennsylvania, particularly now that there's a Democratic governor. The win is also critical given that Republicans still control the state Senate and it was feared that they would place a constitutional amendment on the state ballot this November to ban abortion in the Keystone State if they were able to wrestle back control of the House. So there is uh, more good news uh, for Democrats this year. And, you know, you got to wonder, we took these uh, these sort of these small, these various elections, municipal elections, state elections around the country last year. For those of us who were actually paying attention to those results, it did turn out to be a bellwether for what happened in November. And, you know, we're still far away from the 2024 race, 
But the signs seem to be suggesting something similar to what we saw last year, where Democrats are doing surprisingly well in a bunch of in in several surprising places. Yes. And and I just want to point out that this wouldn't just be good news for Democrats. It would be good news for rights and freedoms and retaining those rights and freedoms. Oh, rights and freedoms. Who needs (laughs) them? Uh, Anyway. So, yeah. uh, One more uh, for now before we get to our uh, guest today. Democrat. Dan McCaffrey and Republican Carolyn Carluccio won their party's primaries for a vacant seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on Tuesday, setting up a fall contest to join a high court that is at the center of a bunch of cases on guns and abortions and elections in a presidential battleground state. So this was another important race for another state high court, even though the idea of uh, Supreme Court justices running for election, to me, seems absolutely insane. But uh, they do it in Pennsylvania, they do it in Wisconsin, they do it in Ohio. Oh, well. Uh, Each nominee in this case won a two-way primary race. The Democrat McCaffrey defeated Deborah Kunselman, a colleague on the Superior Court, and Carluccio defeated Patricia McCullough, a Commonwealth Court judge who lost a primary for a high court seat in 2021. And this, in fact, arguably was good news for Republicans. On the campaign trail, McCullough repeatedly had boasted, for some strange reason, of being the, quote, only judge in 2020 in the presidential election in the entire country to order a halt to her state's election certification. She was actually proud of that. And that actually freaked out Republicans. She boasted about that, about stopping, trying anyway, to stop her state's elections, even though she was the only judge in the country to do so. There was about 60 different cases. All of them said, no, there's nothing to stop it for. There's nothing to reverse the uh, no evidence to, uh, uh, you know, stop the election certification. McCullough, however, as a judge, did so. And that's pretty much what she ran on. Even among Republicans, this did not work. Many hmm. of many uh, Republicans actually campaigned hard to make sure that she was not their nominee for the state's high court this year. That's encouraging. Uh, that Republicans didn't want to have her yes. as their. Yeah, I would, there I are guess some I have sane Republicans still there. Yeah, some same Republicans, or frankly, Republicans who are realizing that uh, if we keep putting these kind of clowns up for election, we're going to keep losing elections. Democrats currently hold, nonetheless, a four to two majority on the state court, which has an open seat at this time, uh, following the death last fall of Chief Justice Max Baer. A Democrat. And if that name sounds familiar to you, does it sound familiar to you? It does. Well, don't be confused. Apparently, I looked it up. He is no relation to Max Bear Jr. that I could find. He played Jethro on the Beverly Hillbillies. Yes. (laughs) In case you were wondering. Yes, thank you. That explains that. No relation, however, to Jethro. Anyway, uh, no matter who wins this fall, it will not change the majority on the court. But as ever, uh, once again, all of these races may prove to be bellwethers for the rest of the uh, rest of the country leading into 2024. Uh, As usual, all of these next day results are based only on 
completely 100% unverified computer tabulations. Uh, happily, there were a few problems reported so far for voters or for voting systems on Tuesday. Though, as we always like to remind you, sometimes such problems do not get discovered until days or weeks after Election Day. So we're just going by reported results at this time. As ever, we will keep our eyes out and we welcome anything that you may find uh, or have heard about. Any tips? We'll take them via email. You can send to bradcast at bradblog.com. All right, let's take a quick break, and we will catch up with the latest news in the in the dumb, really dumb, if really dangerous debt ceiling battle. And we will be joined by a guest who argues that this fight needn't be happening at all. All of that and more just ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Here we go, dancing on the ceiling yet again. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met on Tuesday afternoon this week to discuss a way to break the logjam on the critical need to raise the statutory debt ceiling, ASAP, before the U.S. government defaults on its debts and is unable to pay for spending already incurred long ago by Congresses and presidents of both parties. That moment, with the need to increase the nation's borrowing limits and as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has repeatedly warned, could come as early as the first day of June. And if Congress fails to raise and or ignore the dumb debt limit law, well, uh, that could plunge the nation and the world economy into chaos with financial markets uh, plummeting, potentially millions of jobs lost here in the U.S., billions of dollars in revenue lost to the federal government thanks to downgrades of our credit rating, not to mention the possible inability to pay for everything from Social Security checks to Medicare and Medicaid bills to military salaries and much more. While Republicans in the U.S. House majority are demanding spending cuts in exchange for a vote to simply raise the borrowing limit, the White House has repeatedly said that they ref that they would refuse to negotiate on spending matters, which they correctly argue are matters to be hashed out for a budget bill later this year, not for the debt ceiling. They were said to be demanding a clean raise of the debt ceiling, just as has been done about 80 times over the past 60 years or so, including three times during Donald Trump's presidency. 
The national debt currently stands at a little bit over $31 trillion. An increase in the debt limit would not authorize any new federal spending. It would simply allow for continued borrowing to pay for what Congress has already approved. But while the Biden White House has said they refuse to negotiate on raising the debt ceiling, they sure seem to be negotiating nonetheless on the debt ceiling in hopes of ending the GOP economic hostage crisis. Leaving the meeting at the White House on Tuesday, congressional leaders hinted at some progress, with Speaker McCarthy telling reporters that the sides remain, quote, far apart, but that, quote, it is possible to get a deal by the end of the week. Well, that sounds hopeful. That, of course, would theoretically be very good news, though the devils remain in the details as establishing spending cuts in exchange for not crashing the U.S. and global economy would be a very dangerous precedent for President Biden to set moving forward. For his part, on Tuesday, Biden said there was a, quote, overwhelming consensus among the leaders that defaulting on the debt was not an option, that that outcome would uh, threaten a recession, devastate retirement accounts, force layoffs and deliver a blow to the nation's reputation around the world, he said. He said it was a, quote, good, productive meeting, appearing confident that default could be averted even as the clock ticks and he prepares to leave the country. Democratic Senate, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he was also hopeful that a deal could be reached as leaders coalesce behind a plan. Quote, we all came to agreement that we were going to continue discussions, Schumer said. Hopefully we can come to an agreement. We don't have much time, but default is just the worst, worst alternative, he said. The White House said that the meeting was productive and direct and that Biden hopes to check in with the leaders by phone while he's traveling overseas this week and to meet with them again when he returns on Wednesday. An optimistic Joe Biden before leaving town declared again that he is confident the U.S. will avoid an unprecedented and potentially catastrophic debt default saying once again that talks with congressional Republicans have been productive as he prepares to leave for a global summit in Japan and as he announced plans to cut that overseas travel short due to the ongoing negotiations or whatever they're supposed to be called now. We had a productive meeting yesterday and uh, with all four leaders in the Congress. It was civil and respectful and everyone came to the meeting, I think, in good faith. I'm confident that we'll get the agreement on the budget that America will not default. And uh, every leader in the room understands the consequences if we fail to pay our bills. And it would be catastrophic for the, uh, for the American economy and the American people. Yesterday, we all agreed that both the Speaker McCarthy and I would designate senior members that we would negotiate to give our authority to make agreements in detail what we wanted. So we narrowed the group to meet and hammer out our differences. And I'll be in constant contact with my team while I'm at the G7, and I'll be in close touch with Speaker McCarthy and other leaders as well. Now, what I have done in anticipation that we won't get it all done till I get back is I've cut my trip short uh, in order to be for the final negotiations and sign the deal with, with uh, the majority leader. I made clear that, uh, and I'll say it again, America is not a deadbeat nation. We pay our bills. The nation has never defaulted on its debt, and it never will. 
And we're going to continue these discussions with congressional leaders in the coming days until we reach an agreement. And I'll have more to say about that on Sunday. As it stands now, the intention is to go to the G7, uh, be back here on Sunday. But it's unlikely I'm going to be going on to Australia. That was the president on Wednesday before leaving the country. Republicans, of course, have been demanding hundreds of billions of dollars in deep cuts to spending on food to the hungry, health care to the poor, and much more in exchange for not causing hundreds of billions of dollars in economic havoc, even while refusing to raise any of the hundreds of billions of dollars in taxes Tax cuts to the wealthy and corporations that helped them to speed the timeline before the government wouldn't have the revenue that it needed to meet all of its obligations. While those apparently, yes, negotiations are playing out between the White House and House Republicans, House Democrats, according to The Wall Street Journal, were reportedly collecting signatures on Wednesday for a discharge petition to work around the Republican speaker in order to bring a bill to the floor without his approval that would raise the debt ceiling. It's a long-shot parliamentary maneuver designed to circumvent House Republican leadership and force a vote, but it would still need a handful of Republicans to go along with the Democrats in order to get the bill to the floor and, of course, see it passed in the GOP-majority House. But is any of this even necessary? As we have been reporting on this program, some legal experts argue that the entire debt ceiling law is simply unconstitutional and should simply be ignored. The Treasury Department should simply continue making payments owed even if Congress fails to raise the debt limit before Treasury runs out of money to pay all of our bills. Those experts cite the uh, fourth section of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which reads in pertinent part, quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts, shall not be questioned. Well, that does seem pretty clear. Harvard's well-respected constitutional law expert and an advisor to three presidents on the matter, Lawrence Tribe, has been arguing that Joe Biden should simply ignore Congress to prevent a catastrophic default. Writing in The New York Times recently, he argued, quote, Mr. Biden must tell Congress in no uncertain terms and as soon as possible before it's too late to avert a financial crisis that the U.S. will pay all its bills as they come due, all of them, even if the Treasury Department must borrow more than Congress has said it can. The president, Tribe Rights, should remind Congress and the nation, quote, I'm bound by my oath to preserve and protect the Constitution, to protect the country from defaulting on its debts. My duty faithfully to execute the laws extends to all spending laws Congress has enacted, laws that bind whoever sits in this office, laws that Congress enacted without worrying about the statute capping the amount we can borrow. By taking that position, Tribe argues, the president would not be usurping Congress's lawmaking power or its power of the purse. Mr. Biden would simply be doing his duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, even if doing so leaves one law, the borrowing limit, first enacted in 1917, temporarily 
on the cutting room floor. Bradblog.com's longtime legal analyst Ernest A. Canning appears to agree with Professor Tribe. Canning uh, recently wrote about the manor and uh, joins us today to discuss what he says is, quote, a simple yet elegant solution to the Republican-manufactured debt ceiling crisis and hostage-taking effort. Mr. Canning, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be here. Uh, first, Ernie, uh, while the White House has been insisting for weeks that they would not negotiate on raising the debt uh, debt limit, it, it sure seems uh, to me like they are negotiating on raising the debt, no? Well, they've invented a fiction that they're, they're not negotiating on the debt ceiling, only on the budget. Uh-huh. But they're doing it at the same time. So uh, I, I have a little trouble swallowing that one. Uh, yeah, it, we will see, to be fair, what they actually come out with in the end. But it sure does seem like they're negotiating. And now, you have detailed a specific way that uh, you argue the president can and should make his intentions clear immediately about invoking the 14th Amendment instead of going through all of these machinations with uh, negotiations with the Republicans. Um, what I propose and what I think is the logical extension of what Professor Tribe had to say is that uh, all that uh, President Biden has to do is issue an executive order mm-hmm. directing the Treasury Secretary to honor the debt, irrespective of whether Congress passes a clean uh, debt ceiling limit or not, mm-hmm. and that he, and directing the, the Treasury Secretary to continue to borrow to uh, in compliance with the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Now, you and and uh, Tribe have argued this is not a situation in which anyone could file a lawsuit. Essentially, if the president issued an executive order, said the uh, told the Treasury to just keep paying the bills, they uh, Tribe contends that uh, there is no one who could sue. That everyone lacks standing, and a a plaintiff would, in essence, ask the president to violate spending laws by not paying the bills. But even if that is true, uh, even if there was no one who had legal standing to sue, well, actually, first tell me, why wouldn't uh, Republicans have standing to sue? Well, the Republicans themselves would not have standing because they can't show that they suffered in any type of injury by reason of the refusal to allow them to, in essence, to hold a gun to the uh, head of the economy mm-hmm. in order to get what they want. Mm-hmm. There, there's just no redressable injury there. There might have been, if the entire Congress agreed to challenge the president on it, there might be institutional standing on the basis of separation of powers, mm-hmm. but that's not the case. I mean, you have one branch of the legislature, mm-hmm. uh, which passed by the narrowest of margins with the disgraced uh, George Santos being the deciding vote <laughs> right. uh, to pass a bill that demands essentially that, you know, either destroy the uh, the social safety net or uh, go in default, mm-hmm. and, uh, which uh, it, to me amounts to extortion. I don't think they're standing for that, but even if there was, and you you wanted to go into court and get some kind of preliminary injunction to prevent the, the uh, Treasury Secretary to continue to honor the debt, mm-hmm. in other words, to violate the, the the executive branch obligation to comply with the debt Congress authorized. Mm-hmm. For equities, you have to have the damage to the Republicans be greater than the damage to the executive branch and the nation as a whole. And you just went through earlier 
the uh, the damage that would be wrought by a default, mm-hmm. uh, the equities aren't there. So either way, there's no basis, no legal recourse. And the, the advantage of this would be if if Biden, and rather than meeting with with the guy that's holding a gun to the to the head of the economy, if he had met uh, with Professor Tribe and perhaps White House counsel privately and mapped out a, a, a good, clean executive order that, that laid out what, what they were going to do, I think that, that that would basically kneecap this entire effort to hold the nation hostage in this manner. Uh, uh, and then you could, then if you want to negotiate the budget, which is appropriate, negotiate that, but not on the basis of, of one of the, the people, you know, the one thing I disagree with the president is that the Speaker of the House did not come to these negotiations in good faith. Mm. The very effort of what they're doing is the essence of bad faith. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let me ask you this, Ernie. The, is, uh, the argument that you're making and the tribe is making is that there is no one who actually could file a lawsuit. That may be true, uh, you know, that, no, uh, that everyone lacks standing, uh, but... I, even if that is true, I don't think that would stop the Republicans from doing exactly that, from filing a lawsuit. And if so, they can file it. Yeah, they can file it. But the problem is the court has to have jurisdiction and the standing is a threshold issue uh-huh. that if you don't have jurisdiction, uh, uh, you, you can remember that whole fiasco that happened with Judge Cannon where mm-hmm. where uh, she issued all these orders uh, regarding and it went up to the Court of Appeal came back down, you had all this stuff going back and forth. Uh-huh. In the end, she had to issue an order dismissing the case because she lacked jurisdiction, and that's the problem if you don't have standing in a case. Well, fair if enough. If you don't have standing, you don't have a case. Fair enough, but that was in, in the case of Judge Cannon, and that was about the uh, Trump's stolen documents stored at Mar-a-Lago and so forth. It still took weeks before that could be settled. For Biden's part, when he was recently asked about invoking the 14th Amendment, he specifically uh, mentioned tribe by name, as if to say he understood the argument the tribe was making, but he indicated he was skeptical of the idea. He said, quote, the problem is it would still have to be litigated. That's a direct quote. And that, you know, if the matter got tied up in court, you know, the government could end up defaulting anyway during that interim, even if they're only deciding on standing, Ernie, that could take weeks or months. It doesn't matter. No? That you get, that unless a court is going to affirmatively enjoin the secretary from continuing to borrow, yeah. at the minimum, what this does is gain a lot of time for you to continue to, to spend the money that's been allocated, uh, uh, but has to be borrowed. In other words, to continue to avoid the, the debt ceiling while this is pending. So, so if that wouldn't be the case unless you get an, an order from the judge mm-hmm. enjoining the secretary from, from continuing to borrow despite the, the, the... And the problem is you've got conflicting statutes here. You've got the, the statutes that basically command that the president spend the money in a certain way, mm-hmm. and then you've got a statute that says, oh, well, here's this debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't have it both ways. And the problem is constitutionally... The Constitution... It's not a suicide pact. What you'd be asking the court to do is basically send the entire economy, because you'd now be past the debt ceiling date, to send the entire economy while they litigate whether or not they even have standing. 
So your argument is keep paying. If they sue, so be it. It'll be a while. It may be quick. It may be long, whatever, while they're deciding whether there is a standing for them to sue. But the idea that we're continuing uh, business as usual, essentially, by the U.S. government would uh, prevent the markets from collapsing into default. In the meantime, well, while that's basically, we're not going to default as long as the secretary's borrowing. Gotcha. It's, it's when, she, when you have something stopping her from defaulting, so, so that's the advantage there. The, the other thing is, and, and just from, a, you know, setting aside the legality of this, yeah. uh, if President Biden did this, and if he did it, he should, after consulting with, with Tribe and, and White House Counsel, he should come out to the nation and make it clear that he thinks this is his constitutional obligation, as, as Professor Tribe said. The other thing, that he has no doubt that this is the right thing to do, and he should, in tone at least, deride what's being done in, in this effort to hold the nation hostage in this matter. And, you know, the nation is really politically looking for strong leadership, and strong leadership in this case, it, it would be an act of strength to step mm -hmm. forward and issue this executive order, and I think it would be received as such by the nation. Whereas while he's negotiating and you're looking at possible giving away significant issues like this under, under the threat of the debt ceiling. You mentioned yourself where the progressives are very upset. But this is the kind of thing that, that politically is bad. So, you know, both legally and politically, it, it, it's both simple and elegant to issue that executive order. And it would have to be issued uh, sooner rather than later, make clear early that if they don't get a deal, this is what the White House plans to do in order to keep the markets from uh, freaking out. Now, Biden did say that he was looking into whether the 14th Amendment could be a solution to avert a similar showdown in the future. He told reporters, quote, when we get by this, I'm thinking about taking a look months down the road to see what the court would say about whether or not it works. Uh, his uh, his new communications director, Ben LeBolt, was on MSNBC with Alex Wagner on Tuesday night, offered a sort of similar-ish, mushy response, I think, uh, when asked about invoking the 14th Amendment. Let me play that, and I'll get your thoughts on it. Is the president willing to keep any other mechanisms, like, for example, the 14th Amendment, in his back pocket as a fail-safe in case these negotiations don't work out? You know, the, the president has addressed that one of the challenges with taking unilateral executive action uh, right now is that it's likely to end up uh, in, in litigation uh, and uh, and could be decided through the courts in fairly short order. Um, you know, our goal here is to take default off the table uh, for the longer term, uh, not to present a solution that could just buy us a week or two. I, I'm not even sure what he means by that. I got to be honest with you, Ernie. Uh, a solution that buys us a week or two. Do you have any idea what that even means? Uh, well, I, I I think that he who was it that said that? That was Ben LeBolt, the the communicate well, the ben, brand new White ben White House communications should, director. Ben, ben should should uh, consult with Professor Tribe because <laughs> that's not what they're saying. And and the interesting thing is this this first issue first came up during the Clinton administration and. Uh, uh, I, I guess what there was a concern, uh, uh, you know, when Republicans took mm -hmm. over in, in 94. Yeah. And President Clinton said that he would use the 14th Amendment uh, instantly and leave it to the courts to tell him whether he's right or wrong. Um, the amazing thing to me is that no one stepped forward after the 2011 debacle and said, 
hey, why don't we repeal the debt ceiling yep. statute, which, you know, at the time they passed the 14th Amendment, there was no debt ceiling statute. That didn't come about until World War One. Right. So, so yeah. uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, a useless statute, and that would be the ideal long-term goal. But for now, with, with the debt ceiling looming and, and, and the crazies in the, in the, uh, in the House mm-hmm. uh, threatening to, to push us into a debt ceiling, which, uh, you know, Trump also saying, you know, well, I wouldn't, I, I thought it was off the table when I was president, but now I would do it. And these right. crazy people attending, it's, you know, the sycophants seem to think that was funny. Yep. I, I think that the, that the best way to handle this is to come out hard and sure in your position rather than these kind of wobbly statements, yeah. because quite frankly, I think Professor Tribe is right. And uh, I think if if he sat down with Professor Tribe instead of the people trying to, you know, extort uh, mm-hmm. a, a deal and sat down with him and sat down with White House counsel, they could come up with the, the appropriate language on executive order, get the ship in order, and then you could still push for mm-hmm. the discharge petition and things in the Senate to try and get uh, Congress to, to come in line if they want to salvage the statute to say, okay, we're going to give you the the increase now. Well, well I, I will say, I, I, you know, if the situation was reversed and if this was Democrats in the House or, or Senate doing this threatening Donald Trump, I have absolutely zero doubt that Donald Trump would say this is unconstitutional. I'm going to continue paying the bills. If you got any problem, take it to the Supreme Court. Now, of course, he stacked the Supreme Court, so it's slightly easier to do that in in that case. But yeah, I, 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 you know, I think he would uh, stand up, wouldn't be uh, mushy about it, wouldn't be uh, having to decipher what exactly Biden means, what his White House spokespeople mean. It would be clear and uh, whether it would avert a crisis or not, I don't know. Ernie, if if they do strike an agreement once and for all, Biden's talking about coming back into town on, on Sunday and hopefully finishing these negotiations. I wish them luck. We'll see if it happens. But if he does, uh, I, I, I assume you would like to see at least what Biden was talking about, some form, some way to test this in the weeks or months ahead so we solve this once and for all before we get to the next uh, debt ceiling hostage crisis well there'd be two ways you could you could do it if, if in fact they, they reach agreement now and and get it temporarily one would be through legislation which i don't think you'd ever get through the current house mm-hmm. that would uh, repeal the debt ceiling statute right or the doj could potentially file a a lawsuit in which they challenge the constitutionality of the debt ceiling statute hmm and they could just do that out of nowhere, just to say we think this well, is unconstitutional. Well, you, what you've done, you've shown that that the statute, this, this, these events show that there is a uh, a potential injury to the United States. Mm-hmm. You know that is irreparable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we went into default, that's an irreparable injury. Gotcha. And that even though it didn't happen this time, the fact that that statute remains on the book. This is would be the theory if I were pushing it. Right. Uh, the fact that that statute re- remains on the book presents a, a, a threat of irreparable harm to the United States, and it must be repealed so this these events could never happen again. So uh, that would be the theory. Now, it may be that, that a court would sound that it isn't immediate enough to... Uh, to, to give you that relief, mm. I think the better approach would be to just get the statute repealed. 
But that takes an act of Congress, and good luck with that. Well, this time around, it also yep. tells you why you better vote through 2024. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ernie, before I let you go here, one more matter. Uh, you wrote last week at bradblog.com a very interesting article on how a veto by then-President Ronald Reagan back in 1987, a veto of a bill that would have codified the FCC's now-abandoned fairness doctrine into law and expanded it to cable, that veto helped create what you described as the mendacious right-wing media echo chamber that helped bring uh, U.S. democracy uh, to the near, near to the point of collapse after the 2020 election. Are you able to give us sort of a 30-second or so elevator pitch for that piece and then I'll I'll link folks uh, to it to read the full thing uh, tonight when I post the broadcast at the blog. What I can tell you is what triggered the piece was the, the disappointment so many people expressed uh, when the uh, Dominion lawsuit against Fox News was settled so they wouldn't get to hear all their um, uh, their sins uh, live during a, during a trial. Mm-hmm. The problem is that that uh, defamation litigation is not an appropriate substitute for the fairness doctrine. And what the interesting feature of the fairness doctrine is, and the and the, the unanimous Supreme Court decision that upheld it, is that they found that the it's the First Amendment rights of the viewers and listeners, not the First Amendment rights of the broadcasters that is paramount, and that the purpose of the First Amendment is to gain access to the truth because knowledge will forever govern ignorance. And uh, interestingly, uh, those who oppose the Fairness Doctrine, which has uh, Reagan ordered his FCC to do away with, and then Obama officially took it off the books, those who oppose it claim that the Fairness Doctrine itself is of some sort of violation of the First Amendment. Uh, You explain why it actually is meant to support free speech and the First Amendment. I will uh, point folks to that uh, at brandblog.com, the headline, How Reagan's Veto Gave Birth to Today's Mendacious Right-Wing Media Echo Chamber and How the Fairness Doctrine Extended to Cable Could Have Prevented January 6th and the threat to democracy's survival. Ernie Canning is the long-toiling legal analyst and contributor at bradblog.com. I will also, of course, uh, point folks to your piece on uh, uh, Biden, uh, your recommendation that Biden use a simple executive order to end the GOP-manufactured debt ceiling crisis. I'll uh, post links to both when we post the show tonight at bradblog.com. Ernie, uh, thank you so much. Oh, and you can find Ernie on uh, on the Twitters at uh, Canning, C-A-N-N, the number four, I-N-G. How that four got in there, I don't know, but that's where you'll find him on the Twitters, Can4ing. Hey, thanks, Ernie. Great talking to you as always. My pleasure, Brad. Thank you. You know, uh, Ernie's article, by the way, on the uh, on the Fairness Doctrine points out that had that still been in place, it would have allowed Dominion to come back on Fox News with the same amount of time and prominence that all of these liars got on Fox News right. lying about the election. It would have allowed Dominion to respond to all of that in kind. And that, Ernie argues, perhaps might have prevented uh, January 6th from happening because even the dopes who watch Fox would have been a lot more, uh, a lot better informed 
And that is, in theory, uh, supposed to be the point of the fairness doctrine that we no longer have on our public airwaves and we never had on cable TV. Sadly. Exactly. And, and, you know, I do want to point out that Ernie's article, um, it's actually a very good explainer on the fairness doctrine and its history and gives you a really good sense for how we got here, especially uh, with our media and yeah. the effect that uh, corporate media has had. How we got to this disaster that we have exactly. to deal with share every day. It, share it with a young person. Too, so that they can understand how we got yeah. here. It's lots. It's a very nuanced article. Really covers a lot of stuff. Yep. I just want to add one more thing okay. regarding the debt ceiling. Yep. I saw what I thought was a fantastic analogy about how stupid <laughs> the entire thing is. Yep. What the Republicans are trying to do this uh, nonsense argument. It would basically stupid be but dangerous. Yes, very proceed. dangerous. Yes. It would be as if all of us said, "I refuse to pay my credit card bills for the debt that I racked up because I don't like." How how my household budget is being spent. Right. It doesn't matter that I chose to take on that debt and I owe that money. The bank had better deal with my demands. Yeah, that's just about it, man. Yep. That is just about it. And again, I suspect it's something they do not understand at all over on Fox News, where they're they, probably lying about, oh, it's all about spending, all yeah. too much spending. They don't talk about the fact that Donald Trump cut taxes for billionaires, millionaires, corporations that yep. uh, stop bringing revenue in. And uh, that brought us to the place we are a lot sooner than we might otherwise have been. And they think, oh, if somehow they can make a deal to cut spending again, the That's debt ceiling. Ha- well, the debt ceiling has nothing to do with new spending. Right. And they know that they know they're lying about it. Do they? I think. I think. Well, the Republican, Kevin McCarthy certainly yes. does. Uh, whether the dupes and dopes who follow them on Fox News actually understand this issue, that is a separate matter. All right, we have got to get yes. out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, to my guest today, of course, Ernie Canning, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Share it with everyone you know. That is uh, free to all. Thanks to those of you kind enough to donate. And please consider subscribing to our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at The Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time. I think we're having a former Secretary of State on our next show. Till we see you next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.